Section two of Orientations. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lilith Branda. Orientations by W. Somerset Maugham. Section two. A bad example. Part one. James Clinton was a clerk in the important firm of Haynes, Bryan and Company, and he held in it an important position. He was the very essence of respectability, and he earned one hundred and fifty-six pounds per annum. James Clinton believed in the Church of England and the Conservative Party, in the greatness of Great Britain, in the need of more ships for the navy, and in the superiority of city men to other members of the Commonwealth. It's the man of business that makes the world go round, he was in the habit of saying. Do you think, sir, that fifty thousand country squires could rule Great Britain? No, it's the city man, the man who's at a sound business training that's made England what it is, and that is why I hold the Conservative Party most capable of governing this mighty empire, because it's had taken the business man to his heart. The strength of the Conservative Party lies in its brewers and its city men, its bankers and iron founders and stockbrokers, and as long as the Liberal Party is a nest of socialists and trade unionists and anarchists, we city men cannot and will not give it our support. Except for the lamentable conclusion of his career, he would undoubtedly have become an imperialist and the union of great Anglo-Saxon races would have found in him the sturdiest of supporters. Mr. Clinton was a little, spindly, shranked man, with weak, myopic eyes, protruding fish-like behind his spectacles. His hair was scant, one long to conceal the baldness of the crown, and Caesar was pleased to wear a wreath of laurel for the same purpose. Mr. Clinton wore small side whiskers, but was otherwise clean-shaven, and the lack of beard betrayed the weakness of his mouth. His teeth were decayed and yellow. He was always dressed in a black tail-coat, shiny at the elbows, and he wore a shabby, narrow black tie, with a false diamond stuck in his sticky. His grey trousers were baggy at the knees and frayed at the edges. His boots had a masculine and English breadth of toe. His top hat, of antiquated shape, was kept carefully brushed, but always looked as if it were suffering from a recent shower. When he had deserted the frivolous byways in which bachelordom is wont to disport itself for the sober path of the married man, he had begun to carry to and from the city a small black bag to impress upon the world at large his eminent respectability. Mr. Clinton was married to Amy, second daughter of John Rayner, Esquire of Peckham Rhine. Every morning, Mr. Clinton left his house in Camberwell in time to catch the A55 train for the city. He made his way up Ludgate Hill, walking sideways, with a projection of the left part of his body, a habit he had acquired from constantly slipping past and between people who walked less rapidly than himself. Such persons always annoyed him. If they were not in a hurry, he was and they had no right to obstruct the way, and it was improper for a city man to loiter in the morning. The luncheon hour was the time for loitering. No one was then in haste, but in the morning and at night on the way back to the station, 
when ought to walk at the same pace as everybody else if mr clinton had been head of a firm he would never have had in his office a man who sauntered in the morning if a man wanted to loiter let him go to the west end there he could lounge about all day but the city was meant for business and there wasn't time for west end airs and the city mr clinton reached his office at a quarter to ten except when the train by some mistake arrived up to time when he arrived at nine-thirty precisely on these occasions he would sit in his room with the door open awaiting the coming of the office boy who used to arrive two minutes before mr clinton and was naturally more annoyed when the punctuality of the train prepared him a reprimand is that you dake called mr clinton when he heard a footstep yes sir answered the boy appearing mr clinton looked up from his nails which he was paring with a pair of pocket scissors what is the meaning of this you don't call this half-past nine do you very sorry said the boy it wasn't my fault sir train was late it's not the first time i've had to speak to you about this dick you know quite well that the company's always unpunctual you should come by an earlier train the office boy looked sulky and did not answer mr clinton proceeded i had to open the office myself as assistant manager you know quite well that it is not my duty to open the office you receive sixteen shillings a week to be here at half-past nine and if you don't feel yourself capable of performing the duties for which you were engaged you should give notice don't let it occur again but usually on arriving mr clinton took off his tail-coat and put on a jacket manufactured from the office paper a pair of false calves to keep his own clean and having examined the nips in both his pen-holders and sharpened his pencil set to work from then to one o'clock he remained at his desk solemnly poring over figures casting accounts comparing balance-sheets writing letters occasionally going for some purpose or another into the clerk's office or into the room of one of the partners at one he went to luncheon taking with him the portion of his daily telegraph which he was in the habit of reading during that meal he went to an a b c shop and ordered a roll and butter a cup of chocolate and a scone he divided his pats of butter into two one half being for the roll and the other for the scone he drank one moiety of the cup of chocolate after eating the roll and the other after eating the scone meanwhile he read pages three and four of the daily telegraph at a quarter to two he folded the paper put down sixpence in payment and slowly walked back to the office he returned to his desk and there spent the afternoon solemnly poring over figures casting accounts comparing balance sheets writing letters occasionally going for some purpose or another into the clerk's office or into the room of one of the partners at ten minutes to six he wiped his pens and put them back in the tray tidied his desk and locked his drawer he took off his paper cuffs washed his hands wiped his face brushed his hair arranging the long wisps over the occipital baldness, and combed his whiskers at six he left the office caught the six seventeen train from ludgate hill and thus made his way back to camberwell and the bosom of his family on sunday mr clinton put on sunday clothes and heading the little procession formed by mrs clinton and the two children 
went to church, carrying in his hand a prayer book and a hymn book. After dinner, he took a little walk with his wife along the neighboring roads, avenues, and crescents, examining the exterior of the houses, stopping now and then to look at a garden or a well-kept house, or trying to get a peep into some room. Mr. and Mrs. Clinton criticized as they went along, comparing the window curtains, blaming a door in want of paint, praising a well-whitened doorstep. The Clintons lived in the fifth house down in the Adonis Road, and the house was distinguishable from its fellows by the yellow curtains with which Mrs. Clinton had furnished all the windows. Mrs. Clinton was a woman of taste. Before marriage, the happy pair, accompanied by Mrs. Clinton's mother, had gone house-hunting and fixed on the Adonis Road, which was cheap, respectable, and near the station. Mrs. Clinton would dearly have liked a house on the right-hand side of the road, which had nooks and angles and curiously shaped windows. But Mr. Clinton was firm in his refusal, and his mother-in-law backed him up. I dare say they are artistic, he said, in answer to his wife's argument. But a man in my position don't want art. He wants substantiality. If the governor, the governor was the senior partner of the firm, if the governor was going to take her out, I'd have nothing to say against it, but in my position, art's not necessary. Quite right, James, said his mother-in-law. I hold with what you say entirely. Even in his early youth, Mr. Clinton had a fine sense of the responsibility of life and a truly English feeling for the fitness of things. So the Clintons took one of the twenty-three similar houses on the left-hand side of the street, and there lived in peaceful happiness. But Mr. Clinton always pointed the finger of scorn at the houses opposite, and he never rubbed the back of his hands so heartily as when he could point out to his wife that such and such a number was having his roof repaired, and when the builder went bankrupt, he cut out the notice in the paper and sent it to his spouse anonymously. At the beginning of August, Mr. Clinton was accustomed, with his wife and family, to desert the sultry populousness of London for the solitude and sea air of Ramsgate. He read the Daily Telegraph by the sad sea waves, and made castles in the sand with his children. Then he changed his pepper-and-salt trousers for white flannel, but nothing on earth would induce him to forsake his top hat. He entirely agreed with the heroes of England's proudest epoch. Of course, I mean the middle Victorian, that the top hat was the sign manual, the mark, the distinction of the true Englishman, the completest expression of England's greatness. Mr. Clinton despised all foreigners, and although he would never have ventured to think of himself in the same breath with an English lord, he felt himself the superior of any foreign nobleman. I dare say they're all right in their way, but with these foreigners who don't feel they're gentlemen, I don't know what it is, but there's something, you understand, don't you? And I do like a man to be a gentleman. I thank God I'm an Englishman. Now, it chanced one day that the senior partner of the firm was summoned to serve on a jury at the coroner's inquest, and Mr. Clinton furnished with the excuse that Mr. Haynes was out of time, was told to go in his stead. Mr. Clinton had never performed that part of a citizen's duties, for on becoming a householder, 
he had hit upon the expedient of being summoned for his raids, so that his name should be struck off the coroner's list. It was very indifferent to the implied dishonour. It was with some curiosity, therefore, that he repaired to the court on the morning of the inquest. The weather was cold and grey, and a drizzling rain was falling. Mr. Clinton did not take a bus, since by walking he could put in his pocket the threepence which he meant to charge the firm for his fare. The streets were wet and muddy, and people walked close against the houses to avoid the splash of passing vehicles. Mr. Clinton thought of the jocose solicitor who was in the habit of taking an articled clerk with him on muddy days to walk on the outside of the street and protect his master from the flying mud. The story particularly appealed to Mr. Clinton. That solicitor must have been a fine man of business, as he walked leisurely along under his umbrella. Mr. Clinton looked without envy upon the city men who drove along in hansoms. Some of us, he said, are born great, others achieve greatness. A man like that, he pointed with his mind's finger at a passing elderman. A man like that can go about in his carriage and nobody can say anything against it. He's worked himself up from the bottom. But when he came down Parliament Street to Westminster Abbey, he felt a different atmosphere, and he was roused to Jeremiah indignation at the sight, in a passing cap of a gilded youth in an opera hat, with his coat buttoned up to hide his dress clothes. That's the sort of young fellow I can't abide, said Mr. Clinton. And if I was a member of Parliament, I'd stop it. That's what comes of having too much money and nothing to do. If I was a member of the aristocracy, I'd give my sons five years in an accountant's office. There's nothing like a sound business training for making a man. He paused in the road and waved his disengaged hand. Now, what should I be if I hadn't had a sound business training? Mr. Clinton arrived at the mortuary, a gay red and white building, which had been newly erected and consecrated by a duke with much festivity and rejoicing. Mr. Clinton was sworn with the other jurymen, and with them repaired to see the bodies on which they were to sit. But Mr. Clinton was squeamish. I don't like corpses, he said. I object to them on principle. He was told he must lick them. Very well said Mr. Clinton. You can take a horse to the well, but you can't make him drink. When it came to his turn to look through the pane of glass behind which was the body, he shut his eyes. I can't say mixture gone on corpses, he said, as they walked back to the court. The smell of them ain't what you might call all the cologne. The other jurymen laughed. Mr. Clinton often said witty things like that. Well, gentlemen, said the coroner, rubbing his hands we've only got three cases this morning so i shan't have to keep you long and they all seem to be quite simple the first was an old man of servity he had been a respectable hard-working man till two years before when a paralytic stroke had rendered one side of him completely powerless he lost his work he was alone in the world his wife was dead and his only daughter had not been heard of for thirty years and gradually he had spent his little savings. One by one, he sent his belongings to the pawn-shop, his pots and pens, his clothes, his armchair, finally his bedstead. Then he died. 
The doctor said the man was terribly emaciated. His stomach was shriveled up for want of food. He could have eaten nothing for two days before death. The jury did not trouble to leave the box. The foreman merely turned round and whispered to them a minute. They all nodded, and the verdict was returned in accordance with the doctor's evidence. The next inquiry was upon a child of two. The coroner leaned his hat wearily on his hand. Such cases were so common. The babe's mother came forward to give her evidence. A pale little woman, with thin and hollow cheeks, her eyes red and dim with weeping. She sobbed as she told the coroner that her husband had left her, and she was obliged to support herself and two children. She was out of work, and food had been rather scanty. She had suckled the dead baby as long as she could, but her milk dried up. Two days before, on waking up in the morning, the child she held in her arms was cold and dead. The doctor shrugged his shoulders. Want of food. And the jury returned their verdict, framed in a beautiful and elaborate sentence, in accordance with the evidence. The last case was a girl of twenty. She had been found in the Thames, a barge told how he saw a confused black mass floating on the water, and he put a boat hook in the skirt, tying the body up to the boat while he called the police. He was so used to such things. In the girl's pocket was found a pathetic little letter to the coroner, begging his pardon for the trouble she was causing, saying she had been sent away from her place and was starving and had resolved to put an end to her troubles by throwing herself in the river. She was pregnant. The medical man stated that there were signs on the body of very great privation, so the jury returned a verdict that the deceased had committed suicide whilst in a state of temporary insanity. The coroner stretched his arms and blew his nose, and the jury went their way. But Mr. Clinton stood outside the mortuary door, meditating, and the coroner's office remarked that it was a wet day. Could I have another look at the bodies? timidly asked the clerk, stirring himself out of his contemplation. The coroner's officer looked at him with surprise and laughed. Yes, if you like. Mr. Clinton looked through the glass windows at the bodies, and he carefully examined their faces. He looked at them one after another slowly, and it seemed as if he could not tear himself away. Finally, he turned round. His face was very pale, and it had quite a strange expression on it. He felt very sick. Thank you, he said to the coroner's officer, and walked away. But after a few steps, he turned back, touching the man on the arm. Do you have many cases like that? he asked. Why, you look quite upset, said the coroner's officer with amusement. I can see you're not used to such things. You'd better go to the pub opposite and have three pots of brinze. They seem to rather painful cases, said Mr. Clinton in a low voice. Oh, it was a slack day today, nothing like what it is usually this time of year. They all died of starvation, starvation, and nothing else. I suppose they did, more or less replied the officer. Do you have many cases like that? Starvation cases? Lord bless you. On a every day we'll have half a dozen easy. Oh, said Mr. Clinton. Well, I must be getting on with my work, said the officer. 
They were standing on the doorstep, and he looked at the public house opposite. But Mr. Clinton paid no further attention to him. He began to walk slowly away citywards. Well, you are a Romeo file, said the coroner's officer. But presently a mist came before Mr. Clinton's eyes. Everything seemed suddenly extraordinary. He had an intense pain, and he felt himself falling. He opened his eyes slowly and found himself sitting on a doorstep. A policeman was shaking him, asking what his name was. A woman standing by was holding his top hat. He noticed that his trousers were muddy, and mechanically he pulled out his handkerchief and began to wipe them. He looked vacantly at the policeman asking questions. The woman asked him if he was better. He motioned her to give him his hat. He put it feebly on his head, and staggering to his feet, walked unsteadily away. The rain drizzled down impassively, and caps passing swiftly splashed up the yellow mat. Mr. Clinton went back to the office. It was his boast that for ten years he had never missed a day. But he was dazed. He did his work mechanically, and so distracted was he that, on going home in the evening, he forgot to remove his paper cuffs, and his wife remarked upon them while they were supping. Mrs. Clinton was a short, stout person, with an appearance of immense determination. Her black, shiny hair was parted in the middle. The parting was broad and very white, severely brushed back and gathered into a little knot at the back of the head. Her face was red and strongly lined, her eyes spirited, her nose aggressive, her mouth resolute. Everyone has some one procedure which seems most exactly to suit him. A slim youth bathing in a shaded stream, an alderman standing with his back to the fire and his thumbs in the armholes of his waistcoat, and Mrs. Clinton expressed her complete self, exhibiting every trait and attribute on Sunday in church, when she sat in the front pew self-reliantly singing the hymns in the wrong key. It was then that she seemed more than ever the personification of a full stop. Her morals were above suspicion, and her religion low church. They've moved into the second house down, she remarked to her husband, and Mrs. Tilly's taken our summer curtains down at last. Mrs. Clinton spent most of her time in watching her neighbour's movements, and she and her husband always discussed at the supper-table the events of the day. But this time he took no notice of her remark. He pushed away his cold meat with an expression of disgust. "'You don't seem up to the mark tonight, Jimmy,' said Mrs. Clinton. "'I served on the jury today in place of the governor, and it gave me rather a turn.' "'Why, was there anything particular?' Mr. Clinton crumbled up his bread, rolling it about on the table. Only some poor thing starved to death. Mrs. Clinton shrugged her shoulders. Why couldn't they go to the workhouse, I wonder? I've no patience with people like that. Mr. Clinton looked at her for a moment, then rose from the table. Well, dear, I think I'll get to bed. I dare say I shall be all right in the morning. That's right, said Mrs. Clinton. You get to bed and I'll bring you something hot. I expect you've got a bit of a chill and a good perspiration and do you a world of good. She mixed bad whiskey with harmless water and stood over her husband while he patiently drank the boiling mixture. Then she piled a couple of extra blankets on him 
and went downstairs to have her usual nip, scot and cold, before going to bed herself. All night Mr. Clinton tossed from side to side. The heat was unbearable, and he threw off the clothes. His restlessness became so great that he got out of bed and walked up and down the room, a pathetically ridiculous object in his flannel nightshirt, from which his thin legs protruded grotesquely. Going back to bed, he fell into an uneasy sleep, but waking or sleeping, he had before his eyes the faces of the three horrible bodies he had seen at the mortuary. He could not blot out the image of the thin, baby face with the pale, open eyes, the white face drawn and thin, hideous, in this starved, dead shapelessness, and he saw the drawn, wrinkled face of the old man with stubbly beard, looking at it, he felt the long pain of hunger, the agony of the hopeless morrow. But he shuddered with terror at the thought of the drowned girl with the sunken eyes, the horrible discoloration of putrefaction. And Mr. Clinton buried his face in his pillow, sobbing, sobbing very silently, so as not to wake his wife. The morning came at last and found him feverish and parched, unable to move, Mrs. Clinton sent for the doctor, a slow, cautious Scotchman, in whose wisdom Mrs. Clinton implicitly relied, since he always agreed with her own idea of her children's ailments. This prudent gentleman ventured to assert that Mr. Clinton had caught cold and had something wrong with his lungs, then, promising to send medicine and come again next day, went off on his rounds. Mr. Clinton grew worse. He became delirious. When his wife, smoothing his pillow, asked him how he felt, he looked at her with glassy eyes. Lord bless you, he muttered. On every day we're half a dozen easy. What's this he's talking about? said the doctor next day. He was serving an jury the day before yesterday, and my opinion is that it's got on his spring, answered Mrs. Clinton. Oh, that's nothing. You needn't worry about that. I dare say he'll turn to clothes or religion before he's done. People talk of funny things when they're in that state. He'll probably think he's got two hundred pairs of trousers or a million pounds a year. A couple of days later, the doctor came to the final conclusion that it was a case of typhoid and pronounced Mr. Clinton very ill. He was indeed. He lay for days between life and death on his back, looking at people with dull, unknowing eyes clunching feebly at the bedclothes, and for hours he would mutter strange things to himself so quietly that one could not hear. But at last, damn nature and the Scotch doctor conquered the microbes, and Mr. Clinton became better. One day, Mrs. Clinton was talking to a neighbour in the bedroom. The patient was so quiet that they thought him asleep. Yes, I've had a time with him, I can tell you said Mrs. Clinton. No one knows what I've gone through. Well, I must say, said the friend, you haven't spared yourself. You've nursed him like a professional nurse. Mrs. Clinton crossed her hands over her stomach and looked at her husband with self-satisfaction. But Mr. Clinton was awake, staring in front of him with wide-open, fixed eyes. Various thoughts confusedly ran through his head. Isn't he looking strange? whispered Mrs. Clinton. The two women kept silence, watching him. Amy, are you there? 
asked Mr. Clinton suddenly, without turning his eyes. Yes, dear, is there anything you want? Mr. Clinton did not reply for several minutes. The women waited in silence. Bring me a Bible, Amy, he said at last. Bible, Jimmy? asked Mrs. Clinton, in astonishment. Yes, dear. She looked anxiously at her friend. Oh, I do hope the delirium isn't coming on again, she whispered, and pretending to smooth his pillow, she passed her hand over his forehead to see if it was hot. Are you quite comfortable, dear? she asked, without further allusion to the Bible. Yes, Amy, quite. Don't you think you could go to sleep for a little while? I don't feel sleepy. I want to read. Will you bring me the Bible? Mrs. Clinton looked helplessly at her friend. She feared something was wrong, and she didn't know what to do. But the neighbour, with a significant look, pointed to the Daily Telegraph, which was lying on a chair. Mrs. Clinton brightened up and took it to her husband. Here's the paper, dear. Mr. Clinton made a slight movement of irritation. I don't want it. I want the Bible. Mrs. Clinton looked at her friend more helplessly than ever. I've never known him ask for such a thing before, she whispered. And he's never missed reading the telegraph a single day since we was married. I don't think you ought to read, she said aloud to her husband. But the doctor'll be here soon, and I'll ask him then. The doctor stroked his chin thoughtfully. I don't think there'd be any harm in letting him have a Bible, he said. But you'd better keep an eye on him. I suppose there's no insanity in the family? No, doctor, not as far as I know. I've always heard that my mother's uncle was very eccentric, but that wouldn't account for this, because we wasn't related before we married. Mr. Clinton took the Bible, and turning to the New Testament, began to read. He read chapter after chapter, pausing now and again to meditate, or reading the second time some striking passage, till at last he finished the first gospel, then he turned to his wife. Amy, do you know, I think I should like to do something for my fellow creatures. I don't think we are meant to live for ourselves alone in this world. Mrs. Clinton was quite overcome. She turned away to hide the tears which suddenly filled her eyes. But the shock was too much for her, and she had to leave the room so that her husband might not see her emotion. She immediately sent for the doctor. Oh, doctor, she said. Her voice broken with sobs. I'm afraid. I'm afraid my poor husband's going off his head. And she told him of the incessant reading and the remark Mr. Clinton had just made. The doctor looked grave and began thinking. You're quite sure there's no insanity in the family? He asked again. Not to the best of my belief, doctor. And you've noticed nothing strange in him. His mind hasn't been running on money or clothes. No, doctor. I wish he had. I shouldn't have thought anything of that. There's something natural in a man talking about stocks and shares and trousers, but I've never heard him say anything like this before. He was always a wonderfully steady man. Mr. Clinton became daily stronger, and soon he was quite well. He resumed his work at the office, and in every way seemed to have regained his old self. He gave utterance to no more startling theories, and the casual observer might have noticed no difference between him and the model clerk of six months back. 
but mrs clinton had received too great a shock to look upon her husband with casual eyes and she noticed in his manner an alteration which disquieted her he was much more silent than before he would take his supper without speaking a word without making the slightest sigh to show that he had heard some remark of mrs clinton's he did not read the paper in the evening as he had been used to do but would go upstairs to the top of the house and stand by an open window looking at the stars he had an enigmatical way of smiling when mrs clinton could not understand then he had lost his old punctuality he would come home at all sorts of hours and when his wife questioned him would merely shrug his shoulders and smile strangely once he told her that he had been wandering about looking at men's lives mrs clinton thought that a very unsatisfactory explanation of his unpunctuality and after a long consultation with the cautious doctor came to the conclusion that it was her duty to discover what her husband did during the long time that elapsed between his leaving the office and returning home and so one day at about six she stationed herself at the door of the big building in which were mr clinton's offices and waited presently he appeared in the doorway and after standing for a minute or two on the threshold ever with the enigmatical smile hovering on his lips came down the steps and walked slowly along the crowded street his wife walked behind him and it was not difficult to follow for he had lost his old quick business-like step and sauntered along looking into the right and to the left carelessly as if he had not awaiting him at home his duties as the father of a family after a while he turned down the side street and his wife followed with growing astonishment she could not imagine where he was going just then a little flower girl passed by and offered him a yellow rose he stopped and looked at her mrs clinton could see that she was a grimy little girl with a shock of unkempt brown hair and a very dirty apron but mr clinton put his hand on her head and looked into her eyes then he gave her a penny and stooping down lightly kissed her hair bless you my dear he said and passed on end of section two